Hello? Hello? Is anyone out there? Welcome to... (laughs) Hi, Jamie. Hi. Hi, Ernie. Uh, Hi, Tessa. Hi. Hello, everyone. Hello, listeners. Hello, world. Hello, world. If anyone knows what that is from, um, or what it means, good on you. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So I am going to introduce our guest today. Also, I introduce her um, when we start getting into the meat of the podcast. But this episode is um, one that's very exciting for me to release. I've been looking forward to speaking with this guest. Um, The guest is Danielle Dolsky, uh, who's a multi-talented professional in the realm of witchery, mysticism, magic, uh, ritual, and um, heathenism. Heathenism is a topic that we dive into on this podcast episode, and it's it's really interesting to get Daniel's take on it. So what I want to do, though, before we jump into the episode is there's a couple of things that come up for me when I talk to people who are experts in this area. I often think about the words magic and witch. And I think those two words are highly charged and they come with like a lot of, I don't know if I want to say emotion, but they might come with, maybe they come with emotion for some of us, but they might also come with like these preconceived notions of what it means to either A, be a witch or to, or B, (laughs) um, practice magic. Um, And when I think about these two concepts, I always think, how do we, it feels kind of almost like to me, like this intangible thing, this ethereal thing that I want to figure out how to harness in a practical sense or maybe in a modern day sense. Um, And certainly there are all kinds of books out there that give you actual rituals that you can practice in your daily life. And Danielle is one of those authors. And um, in in her many books, today we'll talk about Bones and Honey on the podcast, but she has also written um, some grimoire, grim, grimoires. That's kind of a hard word to say. How do you say grim, grimoire? Right? I don't know. Does anyone know how to pronounce it? I don't personally, unfortunately. Grimoire. I think you're doing it right. right. I think it is grimoire. Okay. Anyways, so grimoire, I believe, is kind of like a witch's, almost like a witch's journal or spell book. But that's something that I feel like is a very practical, tangible way to start to think about. If I ascribe to being a witch or if I consider myself a witch and I want to practice magic, that might be an avenue to go. That might be a resource that I have. So I wanted to hear from both you, Jamie and Ernie, when I say, or when someone says witch and when someone says magic, what comes up for you? Um, well, when I think of like those words, like I usually think of like something mystical, um, or I usually think of like rituals and like a supernatural like practice or something. But I feel like maybe that's m- much more of like a stereotyped sort of like idea that I have, considering that like I, personally, I haven't met too many people who like practice that or anything. So I feel like for me, I have like a very limited like um like experience like with that. But I feel like it could be like a much broader sense as well. Yeah. Yeah totes Ernie? so uh thank you um i just waiting to make sure um so when i think of um 
the friends that I've had uh, usually refer to themselves as Wiccan instead of witch. And I wonder if they do that to avoid this stereotype, because when I think of a witch or um, in that regard, I think of somebody who's connected with the world, uh, who's, um, who's more about the ethereal and they use the magic in the sense of connecting to the to the world around them as opposed to the old stereotype where a, a witch was you know you burned witches at the stake but um and it's always dark but a wiccan um really tries to make sure that they promote to me what i think of is positive energy of um awareness and then the magic is the energy that they use. It's their ability to harness the positive energy around us um, and kind of bring it together. Oh, I like that definition. Okay, so one is the subject and one is the object, kind of, like yes, the tool. Um, I like that. Yeah, and I like thinking about it as an energy, and I certainly think there's room for both light and dark and a feeling of... I don't know. I don't want to say good or bad. I don't really think of it in those terms, but lightness and darkness. Uh, another thing that Danielle and I talk about is the dark night of the soul and how important that shadow work is. Um, you really can't have, you can't really have one without the other. I always think of this. Um, I'm sure I've said this a million times on this podcast, but I always think of this poem by Khalil Gibran. Um, and it's some, the line is something along the lines of, you, you know, you can't have joy without sorrow. They, they go hand in hand. And when one sits at your bedside, the other one sits at your headboard. And you really can't know what joy is without having the contrast of knowing what sorrow is. Um, so I think, you know, what, Ernie, what you said is making me think of is... Um, I like to think of this as, as an invitation to practice wholeness. You know, we like to compartmentalize things and we like to, I don't know if we like to compartmentalize things, but maybe it's more of like a unconscious bias where it's like, oh, I want everything to be neat and tidy and I want everything to be joyful and peaceful. And, but our human existence is messy. Oh my God, it's messy. And I think that's part of what makes our human existence so beautiful is the mess because we can see in comparison to the chaos, when something falls into place and when something works out, it's like, oh, I have so much appreciation for that because I, because I have that contrast to compare it against. And if we didn't have that contrast, like if everything was beautiful and lovely all the time, would we really even know what beauty was? What do you think? Oh, no, I don't think so. Because like, I was thinking about that because it's always a cycle like you have to have like not just like that linear like up and down but it's just like part of that like cycle where it's like well you're just at this part of like the circle and everything mm -hmm. uh, because if something's consistent you're obviously gonna just like i, I think about that because like we live or at least i live in a really beautiful place um and i always think about like it's really beautiful but there's other like beauty as well i don't know where or like like whenever oh man um like whenever there's an up and down like you have to have like the bad to have like to recognize the good and everything and so like with that like there's just like part of a cycle um and yeah yeah i like the, i like the image of a cycle it, you know a circle is complete a circle is whole 
and yeah, you might go through those swings where it's like, uh, that feels really good. That doesn't feel so good, but you know, it's going to come back around. Yeah. Cause you have to have the contrast to be able to see them. So. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I like the idea of a cycle as well. Um, because I think it gets you away from, like you said, Tessa, uh, good and bad. It's not good and bad. It comes out as, as positive, negative. And I think that that's what in, it, when you, when you used to think of some of the, like the witch, it was always like bad, evil, dark, dark arts. Um, and then, then it was, well, the good is championing as opposed to, are you channeling positive energy or channeling negative energy? And the cycle goes back and forth. You don't know it's a good day if you're not having a bad day. And like, Jamie said, I love that imagery. You don't really know what beauty is if you haven't been on another side, but then there are many different kinds of of um, beauty and there are many different kinds of positive energy. And you can either take a, a negative thing and make it positive, or you can take a positive thing and make it into another positive. So I kind of like that. I also think that this kind of thought process is helpful in terms of being able to hold paradox simultaneously. So when I say that, I mean, um, hold the idea that something can be simultaneously good and bad. And I think that makes us more compassionate human beings with one another. I think about, um, I had this conversation over on the Radically Loved podcast with Sa De Simone, who is talking about um, the work that he does. He works with unhoused youth in LA. And he was talking about this idea of paradox being such a beautiful thing to kind of like behold in situations where something can seem really dire or something can sound really bad or some, some sort of life circumstance can be just terrible on the surface. It can look terrible on the surface. And so he was describing his work going into the unhoused youth uh, camps and and talking to these people and just getting like a, a day in the life of and he's like describing this one person who says you know surrounded by whatever it is they're surrounded by not having basic needs met in essence like not having a roof over your head not knowing where your next meal is going to come from but also this person being able to say I'm looking forward to this in my life this is going really well um, I have hope because of X, Y, and Z. So being able to do both, hold that good and bad simultaneously, I think makes us more compassionate human beings. All right. So with that said, uh, without further ado, I am just so excited to bring you a conversation with Daniel Dolsky. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Outside the Studio. We have a very special guest on the show today, uh, Daniel Dolsky, which is a multi-time author. And uh, we're going to be talking a lot about her new book uh, on this episode. It's called Bones and Honey, a Heathen Prayer Book. And I'll hold up the cover, uh, which is lovely and beautiful and just such a nice resource to have had in my life uh, as we head into 2024. Such a a wild year. It feels like so much is happening. It feels like there's just 
so much chaos and uncertainty in the world. Um, and so, yeah. I, what else? Danielle, she's the author. I mean, like I said, multi-time author, the holy wild seasons of moon and flame woman, most wild, the holy wild grimoire. And then most re- recently bones and honey, which is the one that I held up. Heather is also a visionary painter, poet, storyteller, and word witch. She teaches internationally and has facilitated circles, embodiment trainings, communal spell work, and seasonal rituals since 2007. She is the founder of the Hag School and believes in the emerging power of wild collectives and sudden circles of curious dreamers, cunning witches, and rebellious artists in healing our ailing world, which, yeah, like I said, is so needed right now. Yes, this year. Yes, please. (laughs) Danielle, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on the show and for putting your good work out into the world. How are you today? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Tessa. I'm well today. I, um, yeah, uh, this is my month of kind of calming down and thinking about my life for a little bit. And so I always <laughs> schedule my dark night of the soul around my birthday. So that's where I'm at. But it's um, good. I, yeah. If it's a scheduled dark night of the soul, it's good. <laughs> it's like you can prepare for it. Yeah. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I, I love, my question is always like, well, I ask a lot of questions about like hitting rock bottom. And when I, when I hear someone say dark night of the soul, I kind of think of that. I don't think they're interchangeable. They're not necessarily synonymous with one another, but I also love the, I love, you know, the willingness to do shadow work, the dark work, the willingness to embrace things that may maybe not feel so like, oh yeah, I want to put that out into the world. And, but so, so necessary, you know, it's the yin and the yang, it's the dark and the light. We can't have one without the other. The joy and the sorrow is one of my favorite poets, Khalil Gibran writes about. Mm-hmm. Um, so will you tell me a little bit about how, you know, what does that entail for you? Do you mind sharing your dark night of the soul and preparing for that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't mind sharing. I, I start talking about it a lot in maybe September because I work a lot with paradox magic, especially in autumn. And one of the hallmarks of paradox magic is you sort of think about your two big inner contradictory roles. And it feels like if I am this, that I can't be that at the same time. And so in autumn, when you hold the tension between those two roles, which for most people come down to something around stability versus freedom or roots versus wings or provider versus artist, which scientist, something like that almost always comes down to like those two types of roles. And you hold the tension between them in order to have this kind of power source erupt in this very tantric way between these two opposites, like the click between two opposites. But with paradox magic, it's the roles that you play. And so for me in autumn, I began thinking about like what feels like my big paradox this year. And then I sort of give those roles mythic names. So it feels Mm -hmm. interesting and compelling and not depressing. (laughs) So for me, this year, and, and maybe to a certain extent every year, my brighter role was the shining story happy witch who you see before you, who's you know the one that is kind of out in the world promoting her work and all of that. And then there's the weeping snow hog, who I always become around the end of December going through early spring. And, 
you know, she's the one who incubates all of the art and, and writes the books and, you know, figures out what the really dark orientation is for the year, but it's like the primordial womb from which the shining story, Happy Witch is born. So when I'm planning for my dark night of the soul, I'm thinking about that, like the sort of um, anguish of, of the artist and, and being in a place of solitude that isn't compelling, that, that nobody would find interesting necessarily, or like it wouldn't make a good reality show. <laughs> and people that wouldn't necessarily pay the weeping snow hag to teach them anything. And yet I really do need to be her for a little bit. So yeah, so that it kind of gives my, my dark night of the soul a place to land not necessarily allowing me to prepare for every aspect of it, but a lot of the darker, gnarlier pieces can sort of have a place to live when I do it that way. Mm. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Well, and what I love about what you just said is that it's it's kind of seasonal and that makes me think of like the the necessary death in the winter of, you know, the incubation period in the winter so that when spring rolls around, we can rebirth and there is new creative energy. And then, you know, you, it's, I thought I heard you say that's when you write your books is during the dark night of the soul. Yeah, if, if not write the whole thing, it's certainly when I usually conceive of what the new one will be and okay. think about what I'm feeling called to write about. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So were you journaling mm -hmm. and or is this kind of more like something that you just let percolate? Well, thought. I write every day. So if it's journaling, um, you know, that I'm writing things that nobody necessarily will read, um, or I know that this might turn into something. I don't always know that going into it. I'll kind of start writing and then see like, oh, this is something nobody needs to know about. <laughs> or, mm -hmm. or, oh, this is something that really could turn into something bigger that maybe I do want to be witnessed. So uh, yeah, I, and I do track it. And, and I'm a big fan of tracking my dreams. Um, which are always really fertile, you know, no matter what time of year it is. But especially, I think, in the, my dark night of the soul time, my dreams are really prophetic. And I can kind of tell, like, what I'm being oriented toward if I'm really good and disciplined about writing the dreams down. So, yeah, that's kind of as far as my, my tracking what goes on in the dark night of the soul goes. But that's great. I love yeah. that. Dream, dream, writing down dreams has been something I've been doing on and off over the years since adolescence. And I, ugh, you're inspiring me to start doing it again because I used to wake up and be like, <gasps> and I would be like, where's my pen and paper? I have to write this down. This is a story. Um, what I think too, I'm curious if you have any recurring dreams. I've done just a little bit of dream interpretation work with Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the name of that book is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I don't, does she have a dream book or women who yeah. run with the wolves? You mean it's, it's different than run with the wolves. It's the same author, but it is specific oh. to dream interpretation. And she talks about repetitive. She talks about all different types of dream archetypes, but one of them was about repetition in your dreams, um, in yeah. the form of like something that feels like you're running away from running to trying to fix or solve, um, and there is this one dream that I constantly have, and it's about being stuck in an elevator. And it always makes me feel like I'm going to suffocate and I can't breathe. I don't yes. know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> oh, because dream nerds recognize other dream nerds. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why. It's just such a visceral, you know, it, that visceral, yeah. like, it feels like you're dying. It feels like... 
Yeah. yeah. It feels like an, an untenable situation. Anyway, yeah, I have, since childhood, my only recurring dream that has been like, I'm going to be 44. And I remember having this dream little Mm -hmm. is multiple tornado dreams and I am usually trying to hide or get into the basement or something but I can see that as I got older I'm always now trying to save other people like there's this knowing that like I would be okay if I would just go hide in the basement on my own but I have this feeling of like but my kids and my neighbors and all of these other people and I'm trying to get them to go into the basement that I know is safe and they won't listen to me like that's a common theme also so yeah I have these and then I can see the tornadoes in the sky so I have that dream maybe once every three months like pretty consistently wow yeah. that is very consistent yeah yeah and I did I so I did a training with Dr. Estes where we did dream interpretation and she was saying that that you know there's this unresolved trauma in the recurring dreams and you're just you know until you get that lysis or resolution so until I get all of the people to actually listen to me and come into the basement I'm gonna keep having that dream oh man because <laughs> it does always end with me being like well I guess I failed they didn't listen to me yeah that's <laughs> yeah yeah I've heard yeah okay <laughs> it's just like there's no there's no easy way out of that one right it's the it's the hard work that one has to do to process unresolved childhood trauma it yeah seems to me. if that's what it's from I always blame the Wizard of Oz but I did learn there's <laughs> another dream guy that I follow I think his name is Dr. Steven Eisenstadt and he has a really interesting practice that I'm not trained in so I won't be able to speak about it too much but he does have this this recommendation that in real life like when you're awake you go back into the dream so you would essentially build yourself an elevator and you would recreate this dream but then you would force yourself out of it or you know whatever you're supposed to do to get that resolution at the end of the dream you would do that in real life and then see if that shows up in the dream time if it's changed it somehow oh so I don't know how okay. I'll recreate my multiple tornado dreams. <laughs> You're going to have to get a lot of really powerful um, uh, fans. <laughs> Lots of powerful fans. And actors. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How funny. Oh. The last thing I will say about that is if I do have, if there's no other choice for me other than to take an elevator, because I will always opt for the stairs then take an elevator in real life. Sometimes when I step onto an elevator, I'll have this like quick flash of being like, wait, is this a dream or am I awake? And then yeah. I'll tell myself, oh, you're awake. You're awake. Okay. You're okay. You're okay. And it's so interesting because for a second, I'm like, wait a minute. Did I just fall asleep? <laughs> I know. And we don't know. What if this is the dream? Right? We don't know. Yeah. I think about it all the time when my, my dogs dream, because it's like, I can mm -hmm. see that they're dreaming. I know they wake up and they're like, what happened? Because they don't have a word for dream or like, you know, know what that is like. We do. Yeah. <laughs> like they think they just lived that. Yeah. And suddenly they're here. <laughs> and then they'll look up at you and they'll be like, <laughs> yeah, they look so confused. Poor babies. <laughs> well, okay. I do have some questions for you about the book. Um, and the, so I want to say the title again, Bones and Honey, a heathen prayer book. And I wanted to pull out the word heathen. Um, and I, I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about heathen in terms of, you know, 
the title, why you chose that word, what does heathen mean? Um, let's let's talk. Let's unpack the title a little bit, I guess. Yeah, um, heathen is a great word. So, in addition to being a dream word, I'm also a huge word nerd, and I love when there's the etymology or the word story that's just wrapped up in this one word. You have like a whole lifetime wrapped up in this like four letters or however long the word is. So, heathen means dweller on the heath and heath was you know where sort of the last holdouts in the celtic lands especially who didn't want to be colonized or christianized they lived on the heath and so it really means to live on untamed ground and kind of refuse to be um beholden to laws that you don't agree with or belief systems that you don't agree with necessarily so that's where heathen comes from and so i think that um the practice of if it is a practice the the identification as a heathen in some way it means constantly questioning like who have i been told to be and who am i actually and knowing that that's constantly shifting and changing and like to what extent do i need to you know abide by the rules and the laws and then to what extent can i get away with a lot you know, um, so I think it's a it's a constant questioning of that and trying to figure out, you know, how the best way to live for you is. And it changes, I, th I think, throughout the phases of life. As a mother, you know, there's certain things I can't get away with. <laughs> I don't want my children to have to answer for me. And as they get older and they're on social media, that's sometimes because I'm also on social media <laughs> as maybe a non-traditional personality. Um, but, you know, as they get older and they're sort of becoming their own thing, my older son is going to turn 18 and my younger son is about to turn 15. So, you know, they're sort of become their own entities now. And I feel like I can get away with a lot more <laughs> because I'm not having to necessarily be the mother of young children. So that's just one example. But um, I think that the answer to what can you know how how much can you be an outlaw and live on the fringes and all of those things that seem really romantic my answer 10 years ago would have been very different than it is now where i feel like i can get away with quite a bit <laughs> yeah no that's an interesting juxtaposition to think about in terms of what can you do with all of this i mean it feels to me like everything's under the microscope especially if you're in the industry like you and i where a lot of our presence is on social media. Um, and so whatever you say or do is seen by a lot of people and therefore maybe judged or interpreted in a certain way. Um, and, yeah. and so the idea of like, what can you get away with or, you know, what's termed acceptable. And then you add kids into the mix and it's like, yeah, I hadn't really thought yeah. about it like that, but thank you for <laughs> bringing that up. <laughs> And it makes it seem like I'm constantly trying to do something illegal. <laughs> I'm not. But, you know, there's, there is the tension between what's acceptable, you know, whether that means by the overculture or by our smaller communities, mm -hmm. you know, there's things that are acceptable and things that aren't, and that keeps changing also. So it's a constant question. Of, you know, what do I really believe? And where's the, the borderland between what I believe and what I can get away with? And sometimes that borderland is really, really wide. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, something you said a little a few minutes ago uh, has me thinking about archetypes, which is like basically the way the book is structured is around mm -hmm. archetypes. Um, and I love talking about archetypes. There's so many different archetypes, but you were talking about um, 
in one of your dreams, getting people to listen to you um, or like they wouldn't listen to you to get them to safety. And I was remembering too, like I have recurring dreams because I teach yoga about being in a classroom of people and they're all talking over me and nobody's listening to what I'm trying to teach or say. And as we're thinking about culture, the over culture um, and the female voice um, and thinking about archetypes, um, I'm wondering, you know, if someone feels like or resonates with what you and I are saying around that, what archetype could we use to help strengthen or do you use any of these archetypes to help strengthen that sense of like my voice is valued and my voice is heard? Um, and what I say matters and, you know, that kind of, that kind of self-talk. I think that, uh, in the book it's, uh, or she is called the, is she the pagan warrioress or the heathen warriors? I don't remember, but she's the warrioress. And then there is, yeah, I think it's the pagan warrioress and then the heathen queen. So yes. those two archetypes, the, the warrior archetype or the fighter archetype, and then the ruler archetype, which might be king or prince or princess or whatever, um, that's the way they show up in the old stories. But when you weave those together, I think it helps us get it, what you're talking about. Like the, the ruler archetype is the part of all of us that sets boundaries and also questions boundaries and figures out um, you know, what the, not only how to be sovereign or seen as sovereign or witnessed as a sovereign by other people, but how to be, um, be sovereign kind of internally and sovereign also within the collective. So it's not necessarily about um, individualism. It's about being in charge of your own rules and your own boundaries for yourself, but also knowing that those are often co-created by the world and the world story. Um, and then the warrior archetype is often about like pre- pre- the preparation for battle. So mm-hmm. there's a great book on archetypes called um, What Stories Are You Living? by Carol Pearson. I'm pretty sure that's the correct title and author. And in that book, she talks about, you know, we think of the warrior archetype as being like the fighter, the sword raised and all of that. But really the hallmark of the warrior archetype is the preparation. So it's like, you know, the part in Kill Bill when Uma Thurman is like training, right? Um, and it's not necessarily when she actually starts killing everyone. So it's the preparation for a thing that that's sort of the, and, and the very disciplined preparation for the thing, that that sort of is what makes the warrior. So I think to a certain extent, given this global underworld journey that we're all moving through right now, we are all embodying the warrior archetype. I mean, everybody kind of has a sense that like, yeah, we're still on this wasn't over in 2020 we're still on whatever this journey was and so what is it that we're you know holding the tension of these times for like why are we here i'm constantly asking myself and my people like you know why are you here now like if your soul chose to be here for this gnarliness like why i think that's an important question that the inner warrior is always asking why here why now why me (laughs) yeah do you ever feel like you can answer that question? I feel like I've been asking that since I was, I remember the first conversation I had with my dad about that topic. I think I was about seven and I want to say it was a Gulf War and I couldn't really understand how, like I lived in relative safe safety and across 
the continent, across the globe, people were fearing for their lives. I didn't, it was hard for me to reconcile between like, why am I lucky? Why am I here? Then what is my purpose when other people are, you know, just trying to survive or not surviving at all? Do you ever feel like you, you come up with an answer to those questions? No. <laughs> I don't necessarily feel like I ever have a good answer to those questions. I know that like the older I get, the more place feels faded. Um, so thinking about fate as being what limits us, like we were born to this family and we were born in this place, we can't change that. Um, so fate is kind of what limits you and what you can't change. I'm never going to be, last night I dreamt, since we were talking about <laughs> dreams, last night I dreamt that there was an AI program that could make anybody look to other people the way they wanted to look. And so I was sort of playing with this program and I was like, let's see what it's like to be like this six foot tall supermodel because I'm five one. And so like, I'm never going to be a six foot tall supermodel, but I was able to do that through this AI program, which is such a weird dream. But, you know, my height is something that is faded. Like that limits me. <laughs> like they say, you can be whatever you want to be. I'm never going to be a six foot tall supermodel. There's lots that I can't be. Right. So. And I always think about place feels faded too. Like even though I could technically choose to be wherever I wanted to be, it doesn't really, when I go back and look at my life story, it doesn't really feel like I did a lot of that. Like there was choosing to travel and things, but in terms of where I was living, I was often, you know, kind of rooted in a place and had to stay there for certain reasons that had to do with other people. So um, so the where feels like fate, um, you know, why here? That feels like something that is faded. Do I have a good answer for, you know, why I have lived in Pennsylvania most of my life? No, I don't, but I feel like there must be one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I feel like there must be one. Yeah, that's such an interesting, I, I like to do this, my partner and I will often kind of walk backwards in terms of where we find ourselves today and what led us here. And it's like, we'll follow those breadcrumbs backward and we'll be like, well, yeah, that wouldn't have happened unless this happened. And then this wouldn't have happened unless that happened. And we'll go all the way back to the beginning of when we met each other. And that to some extent also feels faded. Like if I hadn't just come back from studying abroad and been interested in the international student program and had my eyes open to different cultures and different um, worlds and languages, then I wouldn't have had this conversation with him in an international student association meeting. And then everything just, you know, snowballs from there. So I find that, you know, just fate itself, an interesting topic of conversation. Yeah. yeah. So I know. I drag my kids to go watch It's a Wonderful Life every year because we have this really cool movie theater across the street from our house, and I feel like it's fun to do that, and they also hate it, and so I feel like that's fun for me to make them go see it. But we were there this year, and there was a man that was there who is kind of the reason why my husband moved from Portland, Oregon to the East Coast, so I wouldn't have met him if this random guy hadn't been a part of that. And he was there at the movie, and I was like, if you know, if that guy hadn't been born, we'd never met. Like, if he was like George Bailey and had never been born, none of this would be happening right now. And that was a real, like, oh, moment. Like, how it really is. Like, your life affects so many other people. 
Yeah. It's almost like there has to be a grand design. Yeah. It certainly feels like that way, especially when I walk it backwards. And you say Portland, Oregon, and I'm sitting right across the water from Portland right now. Oh, wow. There's a serendipity. (laughs) (laughs) Um. One more one more thing about archetypes, and then I want to shift to a different topic, but I wanted, you know, in lieu of this year, to me, I said at the beginning of the podcast, feels like a big year. For us in this country, it's an election year. For a lot of other countries, it's also an election year. Um, I know Mexico has a big election coming up across, all across the globe. It feels like, what's going to happen? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, I'm like on the edge of my seat, biting my fingernails over here. So, and I don't know, it it feels just, I I was listening to um, Trevor Noah talk about this and I felt like I resonated with what he said in terms of, it feels like I've been afraid of elections before, but I haven't been afraid in terms of like there being this sense of possible violence around an election year. Um, and so I'm wondering if we were to use, and like I said, this book to me, Bones and Honey is, is like a resource, a reference book for kind of like any stage that you are, or any circumstance that you're finding yourself in, in life. And I'm thinking about what do you think about the archetype being most important for our world today in this particular climate that we find ourselves in? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the wounded healer is probably the most important archetype for the world. Um, And I think that maybe that's especially true for people that identify as healers, but also maybe not. Maybe it's important for everyone to um, at least explore what the wounded healer archetype would mean. Um, Because yeah, I think it's, I, I think we're, we're, we're still just at the very, very beginning. I had this download at the beginning of, COVID, well, not the beginning of COVID, but the beginning of quarantine in March of 2020, where I was sort of in this, it's a hypnopompic state when you're waking up from sleep. And I just heard this voice say, you know, the, the humanity has come one inch out of a hundred million miles. Mm-hmm. And I just thought like, wow, that is not very far. <laughs> and so if we're just at the beginning of that, and we're sort of, you know, not even at the once upon a time yet then of course it's going to be gnarly because birth is gnarly um so i think you know the wounded healer you the the medicine is in the wound in that archetype and so and i think that that'll take on different uh shapes as we go through the coming year and beyond but for now it's thinking about like individually where is the medicine in your wound we all have a deep sacred wound and so you know it's not necessarily trying to stitch it up and ignore it it's letting it ache and letting it bleed and trying to find um trying trying to honor the wound as much as you would honor your your gifts um so yeah that's all i'll say about that for now but i agree i think it's a it's gonna be a gnarly year i have i have this this knowing that that i i don't share often because not everybody receives it well but i just don't feel like I'm going to in my lifetime see the end or like see like the great wrap up or the ever after to this story like I don't think that I'm gonna you know necessarily die when the the world is good again or something and, and I'm okay with that 
So, you know, I'm here right now to try to witch what I can from the inside and uh, see a lot of the systems that I don't agree with crumble. I hope I get to see that. But do I get to see the great rebirth and the coming dawn? I don't know that I do. And I think that's okay. Like, you know, I have I have this long vision. I hope my children get to see it or my grandchildren or my great, great, great grandchildren. But uh, I'm okay not necessarily knowing how it all ends in this incarnation. Because yeah. if it ended quickly, it wouldn't be as good. <laughs> yeah. We're lasting. I wonder about sustainability when something that has taken so long to be built up and is so ingrained in our society over hundreds and hundreds of years, the crumbling that seems to take a long time. I feel like this has been a long time coming. And so I think you're right. The building back up, I think is going to take, I don't know if it needs to be just as long, but I think it takes uh, maybe decades. I don't know if it's hundreds of years, but when you were saying that there's something about like, okay, I can handle that if it's for a purpose, if, if it's for a greater good. Um, and that made me feel a little bit more at peace when you were saying that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so the word witch, um, the BBC put out this, oh gosh, I think it was a 13 part series, 13 for a reason on um, the, I think it's just called witch and it's like a, a podcast series. Did Have you heard of this? No, I don't think so. It was it was quite interesting. And so the the person that was hosting the interviews went around to the world and talked to many different witches from all over the world and um, age brackets and socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think what they were trying to get at was defining the witch um, and also doing more investigative journalism in terms of like, well, there's not just one answer. It's not a linear path and there's not one right definition. Um, and so I was curious about how you would define the word witch and if that has evolved for you over the years, has it stayed constant? Yeah. I I wanted to hear you talk about that. It's stayed constant just because my definition is relatively simple. Um, I think that you're a witch if you meet both of two conditions. The first is you identify as a witch. Um, I think that if you don't claim that name for yourself and somebody else is calling you a witch, there's just no way it could be true. You have to claim that name for yourself. And that also, you practice witchcraft. But that can look, you know, what does it mean to practice witchcraft? That's a whole other question. (laughs) It can look any number of ways. I think that it a uh, practice of witchcraft very much ebbs and flows and i know plenty of witches especially you know my age and older who you know they don't necessarily practice witchcraft every day anymore or even every moon cycle anymore it's something that's kind of there when they need it and when they don't need it and it might be years that they don't feel like they need it then um you know they're still practicing it technically even though it isn't this you know very rigid disciplined thing necessarily um and of course, some witches need it to be versus others don't necessarily. But that doesn't mean that they're not witches just because they're not like actively tending their altar every single day either. Um, so, yeah, you identify as a witch and you practice witchcraft, whatever that means for you. Yeah. Well, in the practicing of the witchcraft, I had a more specific question about the chapters in the books or they're called um, they're called books within the book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And they're these prayers, prayers for basically anything. Um, 
And I was curious about the use of the word prayer um, versus something like spell or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think I was curious about the that specific word prayer versus something like spell. Um, and I just wanted to hear you talk about what prayer means to you, why that, you know, maybe you want to talk about the etymology of prayer. Um, Yes, I always do. (laughs) So prayer means the earnest request. And so um, we might think of prayer as similar, but a little bit different from a charm in witchcraft, where a charm, if you were speaking that like some kind of an incantation, you would want to consider where it's going. So that's similar with a prayer. You know, you don't have have to necessarily be praying to a deity. You could be praying to your ancestors or your own wise and future self, you know, sending the prayer to yourself in the future or in the past as something that could be like a healing elixir. Um, But thinking about an earnest request or a petition, but like to whom, you know, like where is that going? Um, And so it would be similar to a charm in witchcraft where you consider like, okay, this is going to go to this particular deity that I work with, or this is going to go to my ancestors or descendants, et cetera. So, um, so that, and then also uh, the word prayer for sure has a lot of tension around it. I mean, especially with witches, I know that for me, um, kind of re-befriending the word prayer was something necessary and tricky because I was raised um, pretty strict born again Christian for the first 12 or so years of my life. Um, and so I memorized all of the different types of prayer, you know, in terms of the Christian tradition and then what that looked like and what that meant uh, and had to really kind of divorce myself from that and then let it live as something else um, as I got deeper into witchcraft in my early 20s. But, but we still need prayer. Um, you know, we all have earnest requests. (laughs) It's just, they might be landing in different places than a deity necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I love the etymology of that word, earnest request. So cool. I'm glad. I'm glad we talked about that. Um, so you have so many books under your belt, um, bones and honey being the latest, I was curious to hear, you know, why this book, why now, um, and maybe a little bit how it differs from your other works. Yeah, it is very, well, I guess all my books are different, but this one was especially different to write um, from the other books. I have some prayers that are in Bones and Honey that I wrote or at least started to write many years ago. So even though I kind of stitched the book together maybe a bit quicker than my other books, I have been writing Bones and Honey for probably the longest amount of time. There's prayers in there that I maybe wrote in um, even 2015. Um, So that was a while ago. But um, yeah, why, why now? Well, I've been wanting to write a prayer book and it just kind of seemed like I needed to say and do other things first (laughs) before I was ready to put it together and then also like the real motivation or inspiration behind Bones and Honey uh, that I was definitely brewing at this time last year when I was the weeping snow hag in my snow cocoon um, was what are the archetypes that are medicinal Um, so what feels if, if an archetype is a bubble of energy you know what 
what what is most needed right now as we're going into 2024 and beyond. Um, so thinking about each of the 13 archetypes in Bones and Honey, that was what I was thinking at this time last year, you know, that that's where the elixir is. If there's a way that these archetypes can be amplified through art, even this tiny contribution of a heathen prayer book, then a little bit of the power in those archetypes, like the wounded healer comes back into the world. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, uh, Oh, gosh, I had a, another question and I I hope it comes back to me because I, I was like, oh, I really <laughs> want to remember to ask her this. Um, but since that slipped out of my mind, I wanted to ask about the difference, the the first two books, and I'm not sure if these are in um, chronological order, but The Holy Wild and The Holy Wild Grimoire. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I remember the other question. Let, can, let me okay. ask you really quick before it slips away again. Um, altars. Yeah. So... Uh, if someone is, is, you know, never had an altar, doesn't know how to set one up, um, things like where it should be in the house, if it should be facing a particular direction, items to be on it, um, how to, to create an altar for someone that hasn't done it before. Yeah. Um, so I usually recommend starting with with two altars if you can. And one of them is your ancestral altar. And I know that there's a whole... Uh, world around the ancestors and tension around working with them and that. But, you know, you you could just have a simple altar to the deep medicines in your four grandparental lines. So it's looking at what you know of them. And I know that a lot of lineages might be in mystery, but what you know of them, if you go back to the earth-based tradition that is housed in that lineage, can you put something on your altar that represents that? So you don't necessarily have to have know, pictures of the dead people that you know on your ancestral altar, you would be representing um, the deep medicine of the lineages that live in you because really you are the breathing ancestral altar. So I recommend having that, but that's not necessarily a working altar for spellcraft um, just because eventually you might have pictures of your beloved dead on there and, you know, they might there's there's a lot of tension around that. Like I have a pretty elaborate ancestral altar and I have Catholic things on there because I have a few, my whole mother line is Irish. And so I have Mother Mary on there, but she's not somebody that I work with in my witchcraft. I have some people, pictures of people on my ancestral altar that wouldn't love that I am a witch. <laughs> so that's not a working altar that I use when I'm casting spells. So an ancestral altar, if that resonates, and then your working altar, I don't like to have it near the front door. Um, I do have altars where people can see them if they come into my house. So that's not something that bothers me. I know other people might put them in a cabinet or something so they don't get messed with. I don't live with people that would mess with my altars (laughs) at this point. But if I did, I would definitely put them away. And then just, you know, the bare bones would be representing the four elements. So you can have a a dish of water, a dish of dirt or clay or even a stone to represent earth. Then you can have some incense or sacred smoke or even a feather to represent the air element and then some ashes or candle to represent fire. And then you do want to tend it. So you do want to change the the water, not let the water go dry. Um, You would want to burn the incense every so often. So that would be just, you know, bare bones, how to have an altar. Um, But yeah, you can go from there. So, you know, whatever your big power source might be, 
Um, and that doesn't have to be a deity. You, if you love the wounded healer archetype, the wounded healer can be a power source. So you would represent that with an object on your altar. Um, yeah. Cool. I love that. Good to know, not by the door. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense to me. It just feels intuitive, but I hadn't thought of that until I heard you say that. But the idea of having two altars, a working altar and an ancestral altar, that's one I had not heard before. So I like that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'll go back to the question I was going to ask before about well, I think the question is more about grimoire because I think many of us might already know what that is. Some of us might not be completely sure. Um, and so maybe it's a two-part question. The book that you wrote, The Holy Wild, and then The Holy Wild Grimoire, are they companions? Are they meant to go together? Are they two completely separate things? And then can we define grimoire? Yeah, Um they are meant to go together. Um, however, the original intention was I was going to write a companion journal for the Holy Wild. Um, and then it did sort of end up taking on a life of its own. So I know that many people have read the Holy Wild grimoire that haven't read the Holy Wild, and it's still fine. It's essentially the Holy Wild grimoire. So grimoire means grammar. That's the etymology of grimoire. And so we might think of grimoire as being a book of spells, and it is, but it's really about like word witchery and your own your own writing and using writing as a practice for divination and spell work. Uh, there's you know ways to manifest through writing, especially if writing is your primary art. Whenever you weave your own primary art into your witchcraft, your witchcraft is that much more amplified. So if you identify as a writer or a poet, then the Holy Wild Grimoire is about, you know, working with your own grammar, you know, using that loosely, um, actually breaking a lot of rules around academic grammar, but using your own writing as a tool for um, oracular seership and then also manifestation and sometimes so other forms of spell work. Ah, okay. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so one last question for you. We've, we've talked a lot about bones and honey and we brought up the Holy wild and the Holy wild grimoire. Um, you know, for those of that, for those listeners that are familiar with your work and for those listening for, to you for the first time on this podcast, any key takeaways, anything, you know, if this is their first touch with you that you want to make sure it sticks, um, what would you say? <laughs> to make sure it sticks. Um, <clears throat> yes. <laughs> I, uh, well, my, my go-to, um, sort of like advice for life but especially you know if you're thinking about you know beginning to walk the path of the witch or amplify your witchcraft path that you're already on i always recommend people um, go back through their life story and look at the moments from childhood and beyond where they really felt like they were um, fiercely present and the most them they could possibly be like in that one fleeting moment in time when I was looking at that waterfall or I was watching the sunrise or I was dancing with that person in that one moment not like I was happy for five years when I lived there it's like a fleeting moment in time in that moment I was so fully present body mind spirit yoked together I was so right there 
if you name enough of those, and it takes a little bit, takes a kind you know few hours, but I don't really recommend doing it all at once necessarily. But to look at all of your life chapters and name those moments, you can always find patterns. Mm-hmm. So you can always see like, oh wow, I'm I'm always with other people in these moments. I'm always alone in these moments. It's often morning or it's often the middle of the night. You can really, and it's individual for everybody. It's really unique. You can see the elements that are dominant or the art that might be dominant. And you can see that that's probably orienting you toward what your unique path as, you know, a witch or a healer, however you want to identify, uh, whatever your spiritual practice might be those moments and the patterns within them, they really help you track like the next steps and where you're going. You can see really clearly what your personal myth is. If you look at those fleeting moments in time when you really felt like you were the most you you could possibly be. Ooh, that's such a good one. Thank you so much, Danielle. Oh, what a joy to speak with you. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. What's your favorite way to connect with people? Um, so I, my website is com or com. That's probably the easiest way. I'm on Instagram as wolfwomanwitch, but I'm pretty bad at connecting with people on Instagram. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> you, you froze there right at the last one you're saying I'm pretty I'm pretty bad at connecting with people on Instagram and then you like threw your head back and <laughs> that's great that's how bad I am yeah. it's for you ah, it's like the truth the truth yes yes sister yes ah, Danielle <laughs> it's been such a pleasure thank you so much for your time thank you so much for having me everyone that concludes another amazing episode of outside the studio i hope you enjoyed yourself i hope you learned something new maybe remembered something old maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life my (laughs) you can hear my dog in the background she's doing a little happy dance um so daisy enjoyed it Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. 
Take care.